Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording July 2nd, 2021, we're speaking with the Department of National Defense's Assistant Deputy Minister for Materiel, Troy Crosby, and one of his predecessors, and now President of the Williams Group, Alan Williams, about the Canadian Surface Combatant Project. This podcast is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding a strategic partner of the federal government's national shipbuilding strategy, providing skilled, well-paying jobs that support Canada's economic recovery. Focused on diversity and inclusion in employment and supply chain, Ships for Canada is growing opportunities for Indigenous people, women, African Canadians and veterans. Because when we build in Canada, we invest in Canadians. Troy, Alan, welcome to Defence Deconstructed. Good to be here. So we're going to spend a few minutes here talking about the Canadian Surface Combatant Project. It's the biggest naval project that Canada has undertaken in quite some time. It's the biggest defense project that Canada has had gone going for quite some time. Troy, you're the Assistant Deputy Minister for Material currently. So start off the conversation, tell us a little bit about the project and where it is sitting right now, and then we'll go from there. Sure, and thanks for the opportunity, Dave. Uh, I think I'll start with uh, quickly situating the project Canadian surface combatant in the context of the work that's going on on the East Coast with Irving shipbuilding, because of course we've got the Arctic offshore patrol ship project also underway. And the work on the Arctic offshore patrol ship will lead straight into the work on the Canadian surface combatant. And that's important because uh, we're really working towards um, ensuring that the capacity there and the processes are in place in order to undertake that work on the surface combatant as, uh, as construction begins in a couple of years. AOPS, the program has advanced significantly. As everyone knows, we've taken delivery and in fact recently commissioned the first Arctic offshore patrol ship, the HMCS Harry DeWolf, uh, the second ship. We're looking forward to taking delivery of that ship within just the next few weeks. And we've cut steel on uh, vessels three, four, and five with six, seven, and eight, seven and eight being for the Coast Guard to follow. So the shipyard has grown significantly. We're seeing significant uh, learning going on in the yard. And that puts CSC in a good position to begin uh, construction in the early 24 timeframe. Uh, we'll refer to um, 2023, 2024, and I can get into some of the details, but there's some work that will begin on construction even before 2024 as part of the plan. The work on CSC is framed around three themes right now, design readiness, production readiness, and contract readiness. And that would be the contract for production. With respect to design readiness, we're working towards uh, entering a preliminary design review phase before the end of the calendar year here. And that will um, take probably in the order of four to six months to complete. And then ultimately leading to, as I mentioned a moment ago, a cut steel in, uh, in 2024. There's a production test module in there that we can also talk about. So that's uh, with respect to uh, being ready for the construction. And of course, the, the contract will underpin all of that. So there's a lot of work going on with our colleagues at uh, Public Services and Procurement Canada to make sure we're ready for that. If I could just, uh, before we go to Alan, can you uh, help situate for folks? So this is sort of a, it's a unique arrangement between 
Canada, the shipyard uh, that won the combat portion of the uh, national <coughs> shipbuilding strategy at the time, urban uh, shipbuilding, as well as Lockheed Martin Canada. Um, so can you just sort of illustrate those relationships and where they sit now? Um, so you talked about the other elements, but uh, the road to getting there involves setting up a relationship between at least those three entities. So just can you lay that out before we move forward? Sure, absolutely. So ISI is our prime. Uh, they're currently responsible for managing the work that Lockheed Martin has been subcontracted to do to complete the design of the ship. So that's bringing the design of the Type 26, which is the reference point for the work on CSE um, and being designed by uh, British uh, BAE. So BAE's design flows through to Lockheed Martin that's then responsible for the whole ship design, which includes importantly, the um, combat system. And they have to integrate the combat, combat system into that type 26 as a starting point. Um, ISI is overseeing all of that for us as our prime. And we have ongoing governance with them between Canada, the various departments involved, as well as um, as ISI, Lockheed Martin and BAE, typically in the room for those conversations as we uh, manage the work and oversee the work that's, uh, that'll flow through for that design to be ready for construction. Okay, uh, so, so thanks for laying the groundwork. Um, so Alan, you uh, in the last several months uh, have been fairly prolific writing about uh, this project uh, and, and you've raised a number of different issues about what's happening. So I guess it just set us off talking at a high level about some of the things that, that you um, are, are thinking are problematic, and then we'll come back to those in turn. My basic points have been two real points consistently. First is, and I have to admit, Troy has nothing to do with this, but I would argue that the process that was started well before he joined is fundamentally flawed. And we can go into the detail. And the key outcome of that is that from the figures that I see from both national defense um, and the part of the budget office is that this thing is gonna cost a quarter of a trillion dollars in terms of the full life cycle costs. And so I basically asked the basic question, can we afford it? Over the next 30 years, according to my calculations, we have about $240 billion available. This is gonna exceed that. So at the end of the day, we'll be spending more money on this one project than all the money available to support the Army, Navy, and Air Force combined. Um, it's just totally unaffordable, and that's my concern. Uh, how do we square the circle? What do we do going forward? So I think it comes down, can we afford to do this? And if we can, let's find out uh, where my numbers are wrong. Um, and if not, what other approaches do we do? Okay, so let's start with the budget piece. So uh, back a couple of months ago, there was a lot of discussion after the, the parliamentary budget officer released its report. There's a response from the government of Canada and from Department of National Defense, which is, which is longer and more elaborate than this, but it effectively said, we have confidence in our own numbers. Um, thank you, uh, is, is my paraphrasing of it. Um, so I'll get you to talk a little bit about the acquisition cost from your perspective, Troy, but I guess the, the, one of the larger points that Alan does raise here uh, is about life cycle cost. And this has kind of go, gone through some waxing and waning in Canada in the last couple of decades. Uh, but a decade ago, we were in a period where we had a lot more visibility on life cycle costs, all of the, the different um, discussions about 
fighter aircraft, a lot of them are oriented around life cycle costs. And we seem to go on away from a discussion of life cycle costs as far as I can see, uh, not just on this project, but on, on essentially any of the newer projects that are coming forward. So I guess, at, so Troy, you can talk a little bit about the acquisition cost piece, why the department um, says that it's comfortable where it is, and then talk a bit about some of the life cycle aspects that uh, we're not seeing information about. Sure, thanks. Um, and, and I agree with Alan, uh, an awareness of the life cycle cost and affordability in the long run is, is absolutely something we've got to uh, have in our minds as we move forward. A lot of it comes down to apportionment of budget. But before I get to that, I'll, I'll speak to the question around the acquisition costs. Our estimates are still in line with the budget that was put in place through Strong Secure Engaged in the 2017 timeframe. And that of course includes the value or the cost of, it, of the ships, as well as a number of elements, design work, the uh, project management office cost, right from the beginning of the projects through until someone turned the lights off in the, in the project office at some date in the far future. Infrastructure, weapons, everything that it'll take to deliver a combat capability. And, and what's difficult for you know, usually to understand is those those numbers are also all inflated. So when we, when we speak in terms of the project budget, we're talking about a dollar in 2050s at some point when the last of the project spending is completed and, and all those amounts are inflated over those long periods of time, which brings, of course, an element of uncertainty. Um, and there's risk along the way. Who knows what the future is going to hold? So there's contingency that's involved or included in the estimates. The current contingency amount uh, that we have to work with is somewhere in the order of 15 to 20% of the uh, current project budget. So we have a level of confidence based on that, that we're going to be able to deliver the full scope of the project in the timeline that's uh, required. When we talk about life cycle costs, we then take those acquisition costs, which themselves have some uncertainty. I think in the, in the PBO's work, they talk about their estimates being plus or minus 20%. We're then multiplying more uncertainty over a very long period of time. It's important to have an awareness of the, the scale of, of the forecast future expenditures, but it's difficult to put that in the context of what the actual future budgets would be. I have no idea what the budget will be for national defense in 2050, 2060, 2070. So trying to do the math to determine that. And of course, that'll be situational. It'll depend on uh, what type of readiness levels the Navy's expected to maintain with a surface combatant at that point. What's the world look like at that point? And, uh, and then the appropriate appropriations will be made by the government of the day to, uh, to deliver the capability that's required. So I'd say there's a lot of uncertainty there, but nevertheless, we want to be as efficient as we can be. So in-service support costs of various uh, pieces of equipment and such are currently a consideration. We're not ready yet to talk about uh, an in-service support cost calculation, but we do know that that's something we need to do. First, the design needs to mature significant, not significantly, sufficiently. And um, we also have to make a determination about how we're going to sustain the, the, uh, the vessels. And that'll be done through um, a process that we refer to as a sustainment business case analysis, where we look at the outcomes that we're looking for, what's an appropriate contract structure for that, 
Uh, what types of economic benefits will we try to achieve, the flexibilities that will be required. So that's work that needs to, to be undertaken. What's, what's different about this project, I would say, than some others or most others, is we won't actually have a ship delivered until the early 2030s. So there's much work left to be done, whereas in other projects, within a couple of years of, of uh, contract signing, we're taking delivery of equipment. So the time frames are different and we need to make sure that we're not making um, too gross assumptions too soon that make the calculations almost, uh, if, if not misleading, then, then at least not helpful. So if I can just pick right up on that last point, is that part of the reason why the in-service support arrangement, other than the fact that you moved to a sustainment business case analysis is different than as an example, the other Navy ships that are part of the NSS, NS, NSPS. So, and just for listeners, if, if you go back to the time where Alan uh, was doing your job at the, in that era and for about a decade, the department was tying contracts for the acquisition of something to the contract for its sustainment and support. Uh, and then we've gone through a couple of oscillations where um, we were we were only working on that framework where you were bundling together both the, the buy and the support, and then we've gone uh, now to a situation where we're doing this case by case analysis. But I think it was uh, four or five years ago that a contract was put out in place um, for the support of both the joint support ship and the Arctic offshore patrol ship, uh, and that was in, in that scenario that was several years before those ships were actually going to be hitting the water. And, and as you said, one of them is um, the other one isn't there yet. So is that part of the reason why you're not we don't actually have fidelity at this point on CSC support arrangements, whereas we do for the other ships that were part of the strategy. Yeah, from a timing perspective, of course, the, the critical path for putting in place the Aegis contract, AOPS, JSS, in-service support contract, that critical path for that uh, activity was, uh, with, was with respect to AOPS. And of course, we took delivery and we've been uh, leveraging that in-service support contract now for over a year. On, uh, on Aegis. Whereas with uh, CSC, as I say, it's gonna be quite some time yet before uh, we are providing in-service support for the, uh, for the vessels. So Alan, in response to that, uh, is the issue that you're flagging related to cost from your vantage point? Um, so there's the transparency issue and that we don't, don't know generally. Um, but I think the other thing is back when you were doing uh, Troy's job, there was a lot of concern about how you could kind of maximize total value in procurements if you had a focus on both the acquisition as well as the long-term uh, support costs and that that was a way of potentially maximizing overall life cycle value uh, to taxpayers. Is that is that part of the concern that you're raising that in not knowing those things on the back end that we don't know what kinds of decisions we're making today? Absolutely. I mean, typically the documentation within national defense as well as examples and with DOD basically says that the acquisition cost is approximately 30% of the total cost. It's not precise, but it's roughly that. Uh, we can look at previous examples, whether you look at the um, look at the Cormorant, which was four times, or the Cyclones, which was three times, or back uh, in 2015, Martin Auger from the Library of Parliament actually did did an analysis of the NSPS, and when he costed, when he extrapolated. Uh, the cost for CSC based on the $26 billion, he came out to a total of 90 billion over 25 years or 103 billion over 30, which is 2.9 factor. So any way you look at it, the long-term costs are the, are the 
major component of any acquisition. And back in the 2000, when I was there, the objective was to make sure that we've supplied to the ministers our best guess of the total cost, because just giving them the acquisition cost wasn't sufficient. And if, in fact, we did get weapon systems into the department that were not properly costed, then we had to borrow from Peter to pay Paul because the ongoing costs were so significant, we would have to borrow from the capital program and thereby deplete it even further. So my argument has always been that in fairness and openness and transparency standpoint, we need to have a guesstimate as to what this would be. So even if you take, I mean, with if you use the $77 billion from the PBO for acquisition, that would, that would translate to $286 billion over the life cycle. But even if you take the 56 to 60, you add on the taxes that are emitted from DND's figures, you're gonna get well over $200 billion, where there's 210, 220, 230, you're gonna get it in that order of magnitude. Now, that's not the final number. Everything is approximate. But I think the public, the ministers, the taxpayers, are at least owed a rough order of magnitude of this is what this is going to cost. And if you're in that order of magnitude, you have to be concerned because you have to say to yourself, how much money do we have to buy everything for the Army, Navy, and Air Force? And as I said, typically in our budgets, it's about $4 billion for capital and $4 billion to maintain, $8 billion a year times 30 is 240. So I'm not saying that's the number. I'm saying when I look at the indicators and the numbers put out by national defense themselves, because that's 2.x factor for the life cycle support is in DND's own, own costing manuals. So if that's not right, okay, what is right? What is the current expectation? The PBO, when, when tasked by the government ops committee only asked for the front end acquisition costs. I think that was a mistake. They should have asked the department, what is your best guess right now for the full life cycle costs? And we haven't heard that. And I'm hoping we can hear that. Even if it's not right, even if it's off by 20% or 30%, numbers will get refined. But I'd like to know, what is the government's current expectation for the full life cycle costs of the CSC as of now? Okay, so it, we can maybe switch gears to talk a little bit about some of the issues that you raised with, with the, the process on um, this project and with the wider uh, shipbuilding strategy. I guess I'd ask you to, to try and highlight what you think are some of the issues that arose with the process that are extant and playing out today. Um, I guess absent the scenario where we all get in a time, time machine and we, we maybe figure out how to prevent a, a particular airborne virus uh, emerging from uh, Wuhan, China uh, several years ago, that this would be a scenario where, you know, time machine might allow for some, for some do-overs, but we are where we are. But what do you see as being the, the implications of some of the process issues that you flag? I'd be happy to. And again, let me say, as I said at the beginning, this is, has nothing to do with Troy. Troy inherited the process from well before his time. But let me talk about the four key aspects of the process and how each one in this particular case was fundamentally flawed. So as we all know, the beginning of any process starts with the military preparing its statement of requirements. That has to be done um, rigorously. And, and, and before it leaves the department, it's prepared by the appropriate environment. But before it leaves the department, it goes through an effective challenge 
by all of the members, senior members of the military and the civilians. And in particular, from the ADMAT standpoint, the ADMAT looks at these requirements from the vantage point of three perspectives. First of all, is what the military asking for affordable? Are these requirements uh, available from within our budget? Secondly, um, are they essentially non-developmental? Because developmental requirements add on risk, risks add on costs. And are these fundamentally available from multiple competitors so that you can run a competition and not be forced to go to one uh, competitor only? In this case, none of this was done. These requirements for these ships were never finalized within the department. They went out in a preliminary form to industry and ISI and Lockheed Martin has over the past few years uh, been working with the government, with the Navy. You could say refining these. Uh, I could use more, more um, harsh terms. To me, it's more like the fox in charge of the hen. At the end of the day, the product that we'll get, it'll be hard to know whether these are based on the military's requirements or the requirements that were refined and modified and enhanced. So I would argue that the fundamental preparation of an in-house statement requires signed off by the chief of defense staff and the head of the particular environment was not done. I think that's a fatal flaw. Secondly, once that is done, the civilian authorities within national defense, public service procurement Canada, industry Canada, take those, prepare an RFP with a pretty rigid budget. Clearly in this particular case, there is no rigid budget. Uh, the weight has gone up by over 44%. That equates to about 11 to $12 billion in cost increases just by itself. Um, the, the costs, no matter what you want to comment on, uh, have gone from 26 billion to either 56 or 60 or 77, just for the acquisition. So clearly the constraints on costs weren't there. Um, the third aspect is um, once the RFP goes out, uh, industry then reads the RFP and says, okay, for me to bid effectively on this RFP, I'm gonna get together a consortium of companies uh, to meet our needs and prepare our bid. That consortia is structured around companies ensuring they have the right technical components from all the companies, but also sharing the same values. Companies want to, will, will, will align themselves with other companies that they're comfortable with psychologically from a value standpoint that they've worked with before. Fundamentally, this was not, this was um, absolutely uh, ruined right from the outset when the government pre-selected Irving. Frankly, with the time they pre-selected Irving and forced all other companies to work with them, um, you, you bias the playing field. Um, clearly, if you're the Irvings, you're gonna want to work with companies with whom with you've been successful, you share their values and you're very knowledgeable. And so forcing everybody to work with one shipyard in my estimation was a fatal flaw right at the, right at the start. The last thing of course is that at the end of the day when the bids come in, the government makes the decision. That's not the case here. The government did not make the decision unilaterally. Um, it made the decision along with Irving's. Now I can understand why Irving's would want to work with Lockheed Martin. 
But let's be clear. There is no way if Irving wanted Lockheed Martin and the Crown wanted Navantia or Alliant, Irving wasn't going to get their way. Because if, if the Crown were to veto what uh, the Irvings wanted uh, and the project did not succeed, Irvings would simply say, well, it's not my fault. You forced me to work with these guys. I told you that it wouldn't work. It hasn't worked. And we want our compensation back. So in terms of abdicating their responsibility, sharing accountability for decision-making, a, uh, a statement of requirement that was not finalized rigidly before it left the department, and a lack of harsh budgetary constraints, I think have made this into the project whose costs right now are, are as far as I can see, dramatically higher than we can afford. And I must point this out too. It'll be more than 20 years from the time that the National Shipbuilding Procurement Strategy was articulated before we start getting our first ship. I mean, that boggles the mind, that length of time. There's no excuse for it. I'd also make one other point in terms of timing and length of time. Um, back in the early 2000s, we did a study that showed that um, the average length of time to complete a project was just under 16 years. 190 months. Uh, we took a number of steps to try to reduce that significantly. And most significantly, uh, the vice chief at the time, George McDonald and I, um, issued a directive to our officials that from now on, in any procurement that we undertake, there would be no more than two years allowed to finalize the statement of requirements and no more than two years allowed for the civilian authorities to select a winner. In 2011, um, the Nar Department of National Defense prepared an analysis of what had happened. And what they found was that from the 190 months um, at the beginning of that study to about five years later, the time had gone down by 40% to 111 months. But that as of 2011, it was up again to 199 months. And so we see that you can reduce it if you're rigorous, uh, but if you're not, you don't pay attention, the timeframes can just get totally out of hand. And I would point out this one thing too, that when we made that commitment, we didn't say that the statement of requirements, two years max, goes for everything but ships. It was across the board. It didn't matter what asset we were going to acquire, be it for the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Two years was all that you were going to be allowed, you, you're gonna need, and two years was always going to be allowed. And so I'm making these points simply to say that to ask our men and women to wait 20 plus years to obtain the ships that they so desperately need, I think is unconscionable. And the fact that we can't, as far as I can see, afford them makes it even worse. Okay, so uh, there's a lot there. Uh, and so Troy, <laughs> maybe we can start uh, working, not totally backwards, but Backwards from the point, so, so Alan's talking about the relationship between the government of Canada and the prime contractor in this um, procurement, Irving Shipbuilding, and the role the respective parties played in the RFP process and then in the, the final selection. So I guess, uh, recognizing that you were not in this job for the entirety of that, but from your vantage point, can you elaborate a bit about how the respective relationships between um, Canada and the different departments and the shipyard uh, were, were structured and set up 
and what role those parties had in the evolution of requirements and it would therefore gets into some aspects of selection of suppliers and et cetera. Sure, uh, there, is, there is quite a bit there to cover and I think it, it, it deserves to be addressed. I think uh, Alan and others who have even less access to the details of how the process works on this CSE project and others deserve to have a, a, some insight into that. So I'm actually gonna start specifically with the comments around the requirements. Um, the requirements were really focused on a mission set. We're, we're not specifying pieces of equipment. We want this code array, we want this gun. The Navy really set out to uh, determine, define what types of missions needed to be accomplished based on knowledge of today and forecasts into, um, into the future, alongside allies and other sources. And, and of course, they're the experts in that. Nevertheless, it needs to be challenged. It needs to be looked at closely. And those requirements were brought to the Independent Review Panel for Defense Acquisitions as well as third parties and, um, and looked at closely to ensure that they made sense, they were achievable, and they fit in the overall force structure that was, uh, that was, was being looked at. And, and this isn't uncommon. Um, neither is having industry then look at the draft request for proposal and make comments on requirements. So I can say in a, in a very different project, the remotely piloted aircraft system right now we actually have a, we're in a step in the process near completion called review and refine requirements. And, and the objective there is to ensure that industry can bring their knowledge to the conversation so that we're not asking for things they can't deliver or that are going to drive costs because we don't understand the cost drivers or are going to bring significant risk to delivery of the capability. So, if, so I can, if I can interject just on that point briefly, I mean, having looked at this historically, one of the reasons that that is done now for projects across the Department of National Defense is that a specific project, the Joint Support Ship in the 2000s ran into an issue uh, that, that was pretty fundamentally problematic and, and that industry, when it saw the requirements, um, couldn't deliver it within anything close to the budget. And that led to that project uh, hitting the skids, being relaunched. And that's part of the reason why we are in the wider shipbuilding strategy that we're in today of an inability to have um, the, the government of Canada have its requirements, um, get, uh, socialize, get some feedback, whatever the parameters around that yeah, you wanna you put on it, but, but we're in the dynamic today where you're doing that more broadly with requirements because originally of a shipbuilding issue where a project ran aground, um, to use a nautical metaphor, uh, because industry hadn't had vantage point, uh, hadn't had any line of sight into the requirements. And because of that, there was a, a, a miscalibration from the get-go. And, and there have been criticisms, as we know, uh, in the past of D&D being overly specific, too prescriptive in defining its requirements. So this is uh, the process that we're currently following. It does take more time, I guess, fast forwarding to uh, some of Alan's later comments about the timeline that it takes to go through this process. We need to provide industry the opportunity to look at the documentation. It happens iteratively. Um, and they provide us feedback, we make adjustments. Uh, it, it can be a time consuming process, particularly for a complex program. When the RFP was released for CSE, again, it was focused on outcomes rather than specifying requirements. There were performance requirements, 
but the how they would be achieved was not defined in the request for proposal. It was up to industry through a fair competitive process. Transparently, they had had the opportunity to look at the draft RFP and provide comments, all the competitors, um, to help ensure that we had a, uh, a viable way forward. And they brought their proposals to, to Canada for evaluation. So um, that then leads to the selection. ISI was part of that process. Absolutely, they were. And I think on reflection, there's a, a sensibility to that, if I, could, if I could put it that way, in that ISI will ultimately be accountable to deliver the solution. Um, had Canada done this without ISI's involvement, ISI would effectively have no accountability for problems that we experience in the actual production element of the project. Because right now the focus is on design. We're, we're focused on design, as I mentioned earlier. We don't have yet a contract for the actual production. When we get there, we want to ensure that ISI is confident they're going to be able to execute uh, that program. And that, that's fairly unique. That doesn't happen in many other, uh, in many other projects because we're often buying and a piece of equipment either off the shelf or modified off the shelf. Um, and, and this is uh, clearly uh, different. With respect to budgets, I think was uh, Alan's next comment. If I could go to that uh, then, Dave. Strong Secure Engaged was released four years ago, as we know. It, it looked comprehensively at the capability mix across all the services. It looked at acquisition budgets. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we haven't shifted off the acquisition budget that was put in place for CSC at that point. It also looked at the in-service support costs. Now, the, the parametric analysis of in-service support costs, the acquisition costs is, is well understood. And there was an awareness of the requirement to make sure that the in-service support cost too would be affordable over the longer term recognizing that they're notional and there's a lot of uncertainty as we talked about earlier. Nevertheless, it was a consideration as Strong Secure Engaged was, uh, was formulated. On teaming uh, with a selection of Irving on the East Coast of VSY on the West Coast for those packages of work under NSS. Again, a sense there of this would be a continuity of work as I started off with our discussion this morning. AOPS into CSC, maturing a shipyard with the capacity and capability to deliver on those programs of work. It's a very long-term strategic formulation that uh, considers the need for the shipyards to be comfortable that they're going to be able to deliver and meet the needs ultimately of the clients, whether it's Royal Canadian Navy, the Coast Guard, whoever. The government may makes the decisions though about who's being awarded the prime contracts and ultimately then the prime contractors are accountable for the work of their subcontractors. In the case of CSC, the team led by Lockheed Martin along with BAE as we, we talked about earlier. The, the accountability is important. Ultimately, National Defense and our, and our partner departments uh, in delivering on these projects are accountable to the government to make sure this works well. We have governance in place on an ongoing basis uh, to ensure that happens. So um, that would then take us, I think, to the next comments around timelines, but that, that might be a, a somewhat different conversation. So I, I can hold on that if you'd like.
Now let's take a quick break to hear about one of our sponsors. In the next few months, Canada will select its next fighter aircraft that will help ensure the safety and security of Canadians and deliver economic benefits to industry. The next generation Block 3 Super Hornet is the best choice to take on Canada's most complex missions. It will also deliver more than 250,000 high paying jobs and 61 billion to Canada's economy over the life of the program. This is nearly three times more than its competitors. It has also work that stays in Canada, guaranteed. Along with the economic benefits, the Super Hornet is the most efficient, affordable means of transitioning from Canada's existing CF-18s to a new platform. It is capable of performing the full range of tactical strike fighter missions required by the Royal Canadian Air Force at a much more affordable rate. For the Canadian men and women in uniform that will be flying this aircraft, it's important that they can execute their mission safely and return home each and every day. The Block 3 Super Hornet's two-engine design ensures safe operations over open sea, the Arctic, and other challenging environments. Whether it's today or tomorrow, Boeing will continue to be a partner to Canada well into the future. So if I can, Alan, I'll come back to you. Because I think uh, from, from having uh, read your, the book you published, Alan, uh, that you've got kind of a, a different, I guess we call it philosophical view about how the government of Canada should structure some of its governance decisions around procurement. Um, you're, you've been a longtime advocate for the need for a single point of accountability. Um, which is not something that we effectively have in Canada for a whole host of different reasons. But I guess in a hypothetical, uh, to pick something where I don't think it actually exists on, on the ship, but if we're talking about a decision, say, about whether or not a ray gun should or shouldn't be on uh, this hypothetical vessel, recognize that we have a ship here that's going to build, I guess, Alan, in your view, how, how should a government be dealing with the decision about whether or not a ray gun was in or out and whether a ray gun was going to work to pick a hypothetical? So, Because I think that you're approaching this from the vantage point of saying that the relationships more broadly with the governance of this project and others um, aren't positioned as effectively as they could be. That is true, but that's not the point here. That's your specific question. I go back to the military stating its, its requirements. Um, under no circumstances should any statement requirements specify a particular product. Um, that's never been the case. That never should be the case. Back even when I was there, the emphasis was, what are our broad performance requirements? Let industry determine how to best meet them within the available budget. So um, Troy commented that they didn't specify, or we shouldn't specify product, and I agree. One never did, and one never should. That's not the objective of the statement of requirements. In terms of, um, uh, commenting, we set up draft RFPs for exactly the reason Troy said, you want to get feedback. But with regard to the statement of requirement, the rigor that goes into preparing it should be done before it leaves the department. That is when you, you discuss um, the requirements in terms of their availability in the marketplace, in, per, in terms of their affordability. And the sign-off to me, the challenge function has to come from the ADMAT and the colleagues around the table. It's all good to have third-party groups around. To me, all that does is obfuscate accountability even more. Group of people outside the department, I'm not sure what they know and what they don't know. But I do know that within the department, accountability rests with those to make sure that the final statement of requirement, which is not prescriptive, does not um, articulate, I want product A, B, or C, but is generic enough to allow industry to find the best way to meet their needs. So that is my, my focus on statement of requirements. 
Uh, Troy also made the comment in terms of governance that it would be, I don't know what word he used, but he's quite right. Once you've selected ISI to select the design and to select the integrator without ISI would have been stupid. Obviously you have to work with them. The problem was in pre-selecting ISI. That is my point. And once you did that, then the die was cast, forcing everybody to come to uh, Irving Shipbuilding um, to see uh, whether or not they could work with them on the project. That was a fatal flaw. Uh, once you've done that, for sure, uh, you can't make the decision without the Irvings. Um, and that's unfortunately the way it evolved. Um, so I want to address those points. The other thing I just want to ask a question on though is my comment on costs. I would like to still know what is Troy's current best guess as to the long-term costs of this program? So Troy, if you've got a best guess, recognizing you're not the CFO uh, that you want to offer up, uh, feel free, but I, I guess, um, and maybe to reframe that a little bit, uh, in terms of your role, you're also responsible uh, for in-service support of, of, of fleets. So how does that factor into what the, so I guess to me, there's in part an issue about timelines. There will be, unless Troy is the longest tenure ADM at times three, um, he will not be responsible <laughs> for servicing the full fleet of these ships um, unless things accelerate dramatically. Uh, but how is how are you thinking about that particular issue? And so how do you make plans, recognizing that you have finite amounts of money going forward to balance off across other just maritime support um, over the next however many years? Yeah, so uh, as I said earlier, there is a funding line, an awareness of the future rough order of magnitude um, in-service support costs to sustain the capability into the long term, but there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Earlier in the conversation, Alan had mentioned we're spending, we'll use round numbers, $4 billion a year for capital acquisition and in-service support costs for all our various fleets. That's in today's dollars, of course. I don't know what that number will be in 2070. I expect inflation alone will make it a much larger number. And nor do I know what that is as a percentage of the available budget, which of course uh, comes out of where we are as an economy. What's our gross domestic product? How much is the government ready to apportion to uh, defense based on what's going on in the world? There's just an awful lot of uncertainty there. Um, if I may, I understand that, Troy. Um, no question about it. But as I said, if if five years after the launch of the program, Martin Auger from the library was able to give his guesstimate, surely there is an estimate. Surely we have, surely you have provided ministers with all, and you can, with all the constraints and variables and, uh, you know, and um, comments about the accuracy of the number. Surely there is some number out there that you currently envision whether it's in nominal dollars or real dollars, it doesn't matter. But there's some number out there that you've told ministers, ministers, when we buy these ships, the cost to buy them and maintain them, given all of these caveats, will be in this order of magnitude. And I simply want to know, what is that order of magnitude according to your best estimates, given all the caveats around it? The order of magnitude is, I'll say, 
appropriate to where we are currently in the definition of what the ship is going to be once delivered and the in-service support solution very notionally. And that's reflected in the, the strong, secure, engaged uh, estimates, which of course went into the overall policy decision. It'll be appropriate at a point in time where we have more clarity. Otherwise we're providing numbers that are just, they, they, they might be good to um, get people, people talking, but they're not necessarily helpful helpful for decision making we'll have that level of fidelity once we get further through the design process and we've had the opportunity to talk about what will in-service support look like for these ships into the long term but again alan you're right there are rules of thumb there are numbers that people know as as percentages or uh, multipliers the people who put together the budgets had that information, had that insight, um, but to start using the numbers, and, and we, this is sometimes I find where we make our mistakes. We put budgets out because we're prompted to put budgets out way too soon without nearly enough fidelity around the plan. I think that's how we get to places where we are, for example, where we, we will never change the cost estimates for CSC as they were articulated in 2008. That's historical. People can ask questions about that if they want to go back in time that far from now until the project's finished in the 2050s. I, I don't actually know what that brings to the conversation. It isn't terribly helpful. But putting numbers out too soon um, also isn't helpful. And it's often misunderstood what those numbers represent so we'll continue to work forward on this. We absolutely need to make sure that the solution is affordable. I would also offer though, that even in the discussion as the PBO brought out about different ships that may have been able to do this kind of work, which is debatable, but uh, even with those, the levels of uncertainty around those numbers multiplied over decades and the uncertainty on those numbers effectively brings I'm not sure what to the conversation because there's just there's such broad ranges there that it doesn't really differentiate the solutions. So um, I, I, I don't know if that's terribly helpful for decision makers actually. Well, so okay, I, I appreciate what you're saying, Troy. I would just, are, are you saying then that as of today, you have not advised ministers uh, for all the reasons you just articulated as to what the full life cycle costs of this project will be? Strong, secure, engaged took into account that for not just CSC, but the entire portfolio of capital program that was uh, captured in, uh, in the policy document. Yeah, I, I went through the document and nowhere did I see any mention of the full life cycle costs of the CSC. So if I can, uh, my, my presumption, not having worked on the file, would be that what was briefed to cabinet was probably slightly more detailed than what was released to the public. Okay. Am, I, am I safe on that from both of you having worked in government? I, I think that's a safe assumption. Okay. I, so if I could take the discussion in a slightly different direction um, to, to talk about a couple of things that Alan raised, Troy, um, and, and I think in, in a way that's potentially interrelated. So. Uh, one of the, the requirements aspect that Alan touched on was the developmental nature of um, some requirements. And so recognizing that as Alan, as you yourself had pointed out that 
technology development when it comes to military or lots of other requirements exists on a spectrum uh, from you know bright idea to something that is fielding uh, fielded and, and is uh, in production coming off a line etc that the government on any project and then this one in particular because shipbuilding is a little bit different um, I think than, than purchasing aircraft or, or trucks had to make some choices about where um, the ship were large specific systems existed on the developmental technology spectrum so get you to talk a little bit about that and think about that also in, in conjunction with the governance process because we have a, a system set up right now where at a particular stage in a project is going to take a number of other years you're talking about finalizing one aspect of a design to a certain point by the end of this calendar year um, but i guess to go back to kind of alan's discussion about the relationship between the different parties involved in this if there is a, a circumstance where there's a piece of technology that's more developmental on that spectrum, so we'll go to a hypothetical railgun example again, so correct me if I'm wrong, and that's secretly been in this project. Um, but if the developmental railgun doesn't materialize on the intended schedule, what's, what's the process for CSE of kind of working through the fact that the railgun isn't going to be ready when it's supposed to? Um, who, who makes that call? Is it is it the government of Canada? Uh, what role does, there, or does Irving play in this as the, the prime contractor? Um, who makes the decision about whether or not you wait, whatever it's gonna be, six months for the railgun to be finished? Or, or how do you go about making some of those key decisions to make sure that the project best balances the scope, the budget and the schedule as you move forward? Important questions, clearly. Um, and, and I'd situate them in the process of ship design, which is a, an iterative process where we bring additional clarity over time, you know, general concepts down to detailed design and ultimately into the information required for it to actually produce the ships. First and foremost, what we need to ensure we've got is um, margin, I'll say. And you can think of it as physical space, cooling capacity, quality electrical power, whatever it is that whatever some subsystem is going to occupy that 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 is available and then decisions can be made as we go forward whether uh, as we track the the, um, the maturation of the various systems and their integration and i'll come to that because that that's actually an area that we don't always talk about it is it's less about inventing the ray gun as you say dave than it is about the ability to integrate a number of systems in the case of uh, the Canadian surface combat, I can't think of a more complex integration challenge than bringing all of these systems together so that they can operate seamlessly for the Navy in the future. We have to track that the maturity of the design process as we advance um, and make sure that we're able to deliver it. And there's a number of ways of mitigating those risks. As I say, it's ensuring there's, there's margin available where, where it's needed. And we're also putting in place, uh, for example, for the integration challenge, a land-based test facility that allow us to bring the combat system into what we refer to as ship zero, a ship on the land, where all of that integration work can be tested. Um, so that, that's a, a very significant area of focus for the project. Arguably, it's actually the highest uh, risk area for the schedule, accomplishing the schedule and ultimately delivering the capability because we're able to pull through, as was the intent in the procurement process, we're able to pull through very much of the Type 26 design unchanged to CSC. 
we refer to it as the float and move part. You can imagine the hull form and engines and such like this. The, the combat system is where uh, the real challenges can lie. So having Lockheed Martin um, involved through ISI as our prime and then ultimately uh, through to BAE for that uh, Type 26 parent design is and the governance to track this, including um, tracking their progress on the various uh, elements is, is how we mitigate the risk and, and put in place corrective actions if we need to uh, change course at some point. So Alan, I'll come back to you and, and uh, as, our, as our time is, is wrapping here, I guess, uh, you have effectively said that you think that the project needs fundamentally to be restarted. Um, I guess uh, walk through uh, how you would say that um, that could potentially unfold and how you would kind of balance off impact of time and, and those types of things um, if that were to be the case. Um, thanks, David. I have said that given where we are right now, uh, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I have said that I would, were I in charge, I would proceed as is with the first three ships, knowing that I'm spending probably more than I ought to, but we've invested a lot of money um, and we, for, to avoid any legal crises, I would do, I would, um, I would finish at least three ships uh, as currently structured. Having said that, I would immediately embark upon a, an appropriate open, fair and transparent competition I would start that immediately for the other 12 ships and I would do it the right way. I would allow these, these 12 ships, bidders to bid on them, picking any shipyard they want in Canada or even building their own shipyard, no constraints. I would be clear and rigid with the statement of requirements. I'd have a fixed budget. I'd say you have, I would set up, we're gonna have a fixed price contract you submit your bids for the balance of the other 12 according to the Navy's requirements, and we'll get on with it. That's in essence what I would do in parallel with finishing these three. My expectation is given the advance work on the statement of requirements that we would be able to get into contract uh, such that the delivery would be in line with what is currently expected in the early 2030s. That's what I would do. Okay, and so Troy, I'll give you the last word. Uh, I'm not going to put you in the position of uh, telling the government that they need to change policy. Um, so you, you've got to execute uh, the direction that has been set out by government. If you could just elaborate a little bit more about uh, what that's likely going to, to look like at, at the current um, point in time. Uh, are, are we going to see at some point a contract to buy all 15 ships? Is there going to be a batching strategy has been the case in Canada and other jurisdictions uh, and before? Uh, I say that having seen a couple of months ago, the foreign military sales case that went out that, that obtained a certain, um, I think it was three ship sets worth of worth of equipment. Uh, what does the current path look like as you roll forward beyond some of the, the milestone markers that you um, pointed out earlier? Yeah, happy to do that, Dave. But be, before I do, if you'd indulge me for a second, I think uh, Alan raises some important points there and I'd just like to share maybe slightly different perspective on it. Um, if we were to compete for a different 12 ship solution for the, the well, ships, then the requirement, unless it changes in any significant way, would seem to bring the same potential suppliers um, together. And I don't know what would change there. I, I, I don't know what different outcome we were talking about. Alan did mention, well, perhaps we allow the ships to be built elsewhere. 
uh, one of the fundamental strategies or outcomes sought by the NSS is to build ship building capacity in the country. There are a lot of people building ships right now and, and part of the supply chain across the country. So uh, I'm not quite sure how we would reconcile achieving those objectives with, with that kind of strategy. So at the end, it, and, and we would be moving away from the learning curve and, and Alan would be well aware of the learning curve that happens from ship to ship. The first ship will be the most expensive ship because um, the yard will be optimizing its production uh, approach. And as we build additional ships, the level of effort required comes down and, and they capitalize on that learning. So I, you know that, that would be a, a, a significant diff, uh, decision. So in, in the meantime, uh, the plan, as you asked there, Dave, about how we're going to move forward, I think batches, that, that will be how we move out. Um, and for, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is because nobody knows exactly how many million person hours of labor it'll take to build the first ship, the basis of payment needs to reflect that. By the time we build the 15th ship, well, my successor's successor, et cetera, will have a, a very tight grip on that as will the shipyard and the basis of payment would be different. So even from a contracting perspective, which of course is led by PSPC, uh, that will evolve over time. So a batching strategy is the way forward. I did mention earlier that we're looking at um, some early production, I'll call it, that would be referred to as a production test module. We'd like to see that undertaken to allow the shipyard the opportunity to really mature their, uh, their capacity and, and their, their processes and methods. Um, as we ramp up the production rate on CSC, I can see that happening um, in the 2023 timeframe um, and then a cut steel and a ramp up in the full production rate in 2024. And all of this, given the timelines that we're talking about, is going to have to be flexible and agile enough to deal with obsolescence issues over a period of decades. So um, it, it will be uh, an ongoing challenge from, uh, from now right through until the last of the ships is, uh, is delivered and then through life into what I imagine could be you could see the possibility where the last CSE will take part in the New Year's celebration for the year 2100 is not beyond the realm of the possible. So uh, this, is a, this is a long-term investment and uh, we're gonna have to remain flexible and position ourselves to be prepared for that right through that entire period. And David, if I may, uh, first of all, there's nothing inconsistent with the current strategy that I'm proposing. Um, all the ships, that I'm suggesting be built in a second competition will be built within a Canadian yard and possibly even within the Irving shipyards. And the fact is that we're not down to two, we have Davy involved as well. So uh, there's nothing that I have suggested um, that uh, is inconsistent with the policy. And I would point out too, that uh, we have, we've received a, a proposal from Vin Cantieri to produce these ships at half the cost currently planned. So in terms of learning curve, I will make I would make the comment that yes, learning curve will reduce the cost from ship to ship, but we're so over overpriced right now that is insignificant compared to the good cost saving that we can get if we allowed a robust competition 
uh, within this country, which we never did. I, Alan, I'm, I'm, as you mentioned, and not to make any excuses here, I wasn't here for that part of the process, but everyone had an opportunity to bid through a fair, open and transparent competition. They had an opportunity to influence the request for proposal. Um, I would have thought, at least in theory, that if somebody had a solution at half the price, it would have, uh, it would have shown well in a bid evaluation against a set, set of criteria that was applied for all of the, all of the bidders. But My comment was that by pre-selecting uh, Irving's, this never was an open, fair and transparent competition. And in fact, you did get, the government of Canada did get a proposal showing that it could be done a lot cheaper the government decided to ignore it. Well, let me just, uh, I'll, I'll close by saying uh, that as we sit here, uh, at least I have no line of sight into what that proposal contained. Uh, and when the PBO did an analysis uh, of a ship that is, I guess, derived from a similar design, the PBO's analysis showed a difference of single billions of dollars uh, worth of cost, which for most projects and most people is a lot of money, but uh, in this, it was surprisingly small to me, uh, given some of the public comments about cost differentials. Um, the problem so, with that, David, is the PBO analysis was based on the same premise as this procurement was, i.e. that while the design might change, you're still working with that same shipyard. It was not based on starting from a level playing field where consortia can be developed independently without any constraints and bid independently on the requirements of the military. So probably some, some issues here that we're not gonna reach a consensus on uh, before we need to wrap. Maybe one, there's an opportunity here though. Uh, the last question I'm gonna ask uh, each of you and, and Troy, Alan, thanks for joining today. Uh, as you're heading full in on into summer, what are each of you reading? Alan, I'll start with you. Uh, I mean, I'm reading a book uh, by a, um, a famous rabbi, uh, Jonathan Sachs, who recently passed away called Morality, uh, just on his views about what's happening in the world around us in terms of moral values and ethics. Uh, very insightful and um, uh, very alarming, frankly. Well, I'm about to start my, uh, my summer leave and I have sitting on the kitchen counter uh, noise by Kahneman. So I'm looking forward to that. And then for a little light reading, I like to read screenplays. So I'll uh, start with the monster calls. Okay, well, uh, Troy, uh, Alan, Thanks for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed to talk about Canada's largest procurement. Um, and appreciate the, the time today and enjoy your summers. Thanks very much. Appreciate the opportunity to discuss this. Myself too. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaica support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.